Hello, this is Professor Greg Reichberg, your host for The Absolutes. I have with me today my good friend, Dr. Gina Linda. Gina is an associate professor at the Norwegian School of Theology, Religion, and Society here in Oslo, where she specializes in religion and politics. She conducts research on Pentecostal movements in West Africa and Central America, Nigeria and Guatemala in particular. The previous episode of The Absolutes was about the storming of the U.S. Capitol building last January, 6th of January to be exact. I was struck by the fact that many of the insurrectionists carried with them religious symbols, Christian symbols in particular. For instance, signs and t-shirts with images of Jesus. A day before the siege, there was a Jericho march around the Capitol building with some of the participants blowing chauffeurs, ram's horns. And they protested against what they considered to have been a fraudulent election. Their aim was to symbolically reenact the story told in the Hebrew scriptures, Joshua 6, when the city of Jericho was stormed after the Israelites had circled around it for six successive days, blowing chauffeurs. On the seventh day after the city of Jericho had been encircled seven times, the city walls suddenly collapsed. The Israelite army attacked the city and it was quickly subdued. I'll quote a few lines from a journalist's account of the 5th and 6th of January at the Capitol building. The name of God was everywhere during Wednesday's insurrection against the American government. The mob carried signs and flags declaring, Jesus saves, and God, guns, and guts made America. Let's keep it all three. Some were participants in the Jericho March, a gathering of Christians to pray, march, fast, and rally for election integrity. After calling on God to save the Republic during rallies at state capitals and in D.C. over the last past two months, the marchers returned to Washington with flourish. On the National Mall, one man waved the flag of Israel above a sign begging passers-by to say yes to Jesus. Shout if you love Jesus, someone yelled, and the crowd cheered. Shout if you love Trump. The crowd cheered louder. The group's name is drawn from the biblical story of Jericho. And I quote, a city of false gods and corruption. The March's website says, just as God instructed Joshua to march around Jericho seven times with priests blowing trumpets, Christians gathered in DC blowing chauffeurs, the ram's horn typically used in Jewish worship to banish the quote, darkness of election fraud and ensure that, I quote, the walls of corruption tumble. Okay, that's the end end of the uh, citation um, from an account given by a journalist. Now, I'd like to understand what's going on here. I mean, what conception are people operating under uh, that led them to think that uh, the the Capitol building uh, should be stormed on religious grounds? My aim is not to judge or condemn, but to understand. Now, and I'll add that after the 
uh, after the, the insurrection at the Capitol building, uh, some of the organizers of Jericho March put out a statement that they did not in any way condone violence. Uh, so I don't want to entirely mix the, you know, the, the two events as though they were one and the same. But still, both events were obviously filled with religious fervor uh, and religious symbolism. And this is what I'd like to understand. The sort of religious fervor described here is often termed apocalyptic, meaning having to do with end times. But I think a better point of reference would be the Pauline imagery of spiritual warfare, Pauline from the Apostle St. Paul. And I'll quote now from a letter to the Ephesians uh, 6, verse 12. Our struggle or our conflict is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spirits of wickedness in the high places. End of quote. In conversation with Gina after the Capitol events, I found out that, the, that this, this passage from St. Paul is central to some of the leading participants in the Pentecostal movement. Discussing how spiritual warfare is understood, in fact taken literally, as referring to warfare in this world, might help us gain a better understanding of what folks were thinking as they encircled and later stormed the Capitol building. Gina has studied how ideas of, of the spiritual, of spiritual warfare, translate into political action and agendas. In Nigeria, for example, where Gina has often traveled. And in this context, ideas of spiritual warfare don't necessarily motivate actual violence. Sometimes, sometimes it does, but not always. But in this context, spiritual warfare provides a framework for thinking about political action. Uh, uh, tell us about this, Gina. How, how is spiritual warfare understood politically, if I can put it that way, within uh, Pentecostal movements? Yes. Uh, well, there, um, there are obviously many Pentecostal movements, and it's big and diverse, but within this kind of branch that has made use of spiritual warfare as a as a praxis now for several decades the thinking is is basically that what is happening in the spiritual world the world is what is important today so everything that is happening in this world what we can see um you and me sitting here talking all of that is just manifestations of a real war that is happening in the spiritual remain. So it's a kind of a quite an elaborate thinking around what is in this spiritual war. There are hundreds and thousands of books trying to describe the spiritual war. And, and the thinking is also that um, Christians who can act in this spiritual war are the in this spiritual war and world are the ones that have the means to interact in this 
other material, less important world, to say it like that. And does it make sense? Uh, uh, yes, it does, Gina. But let, let you know, and Paula White, uh, head of uh, President Trump's uh, evangelical council uh, and a leading advisor, is I understand that one of these people who adhere very closely to the doctrine of spiritual warfare. Uh, and she, I'm not, I, I don't know that I'd call her a Pentecostal, but again, we're, we're talking about it, uh, understanding Pentecostalism is perhaps uh, providing a, a framework of analysis for uh, events that took place uh, around the Capitol building. Uh, she uh, believes that she can channel spiritual forces and bring them to bear in uh, events of this world that, that we would describe as political. Am I right about that? Yes, and, and she's part of a, of a global network of apostles, it's often called. Um, and it's a network that has uh, uh, people from Latin America, from Africa, from Europe, Asia, and the US. And who somehow read some of the same literature and they kind of influence each other on kind of how to think about how to enact a kind of the global uh, spiritual warriors. So those who are kind of persons like Paula White and though and many others like her who can actually map the spiritual world are very important because those are the persons that can tell us kind of who's good, who's bad, and, and how to act on it. And uh, she has, as her colleagues, uh, apostles in, in other countries, they believe they have a, a special calling uh, to, to, to act in this world and also to see and understand it. The idea of spiritual warfare is a, a traditional one in Christianity. So, uh, for instance, I mean, there, there, there are passages where the, you know, the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas uh, discusses spiritual warfare, which he contrasts to uh, physical warfare. Uh, and on, on this conception, uh, spiritual warfare uh, relates first and foremost to uh, keeping my wayward, one's own wayward desires in check. Uh, and, you know, the supposition is that uh, human beings undergo temptations. Uh, temptations are sometimes prompted by uh, uh, spiritual beings that, that they called angels. So in a way, the, the, the spiritual warfare vis-a-vis uh, -vis one's, one's own self has a kind of higher cosmic dimension to it. But what you don't find in Aquinas uh, even though he takes this uh, spiritual warfare quite seriously and he's, he, he thinks that there are beings called angels that are spiritual beings, is you don't see him translating this into the political domain. He doesn't use it to describe 
how we should and should not conduct ourselves within the, the uh, what you call the temporal or, or political sphere. Uh, and when he describes war in the context of the temporal or political sphere, he uses other words. He, he, he well, it's physical warfare. He sometimes speaks of, of uh, just and unjust uh, uh, war. So it, could you explain a little bit more, Gina, how this Pentecostal uh, understanding uh, matters of faith are directly translated into the political sphere and how spiritual warfare uh, is actually waged within the, the political domain. Yes, it's, well, it's an extremely kind of flexible language. It's because it can both be symbolic People can understand it symbolically, but it can also be very practical. And that that's the part that we're talking about now, kind of, when it's when it's seen in a, a much more direct and understood in a much more direct way. And and Pentecostals would also have the kind of the, the, the ground level that uh, that you talked about, the waging war against one's own personal vicious so to say so they have that too but then they have two other levels which is a second level which is uh, raging war against occult forces in societies paganism traditional religion that sort of thing and then like a third level which was elaborated particularly in the 80s and became very big in the 90s. And as we see, still big, as an example of, of the US, but where it is on the, the state structure, the authorities, uh, the Ephesians 6, verse 6 that you mentioned. That's that's kind of the third level. And and, and for instance, it's, it's uh, one uh, former uh, foreign minister in Guatemala, who, who strongly believed in spiritual warfare and has written many books on it, uh, Harold Caballero, he, for instance, was convinced that the problems facing Guatemala, such as the, a 36-year-long civil war, poverty, etc., was not due to any structural reasons, elite um, politics or whatever, but he saw it as a direct consequence of the curse that was put on the country because of uh, Guatemalans um, um, adoration of Mayan gods. So he, uh, for instance, in, in, in breaking this curse inflicted upon the nation, he rented uh, an, an airplane and he traveled around these kind of demonic spots, Mayan places in the countries, and prayed and prayed fiercely. So it's also, it's all, it's of course also a way of saying kind of why is something happening, <laughs> who's culpable and who can do something about it. So it has, we see it in the US, but we've seen it uh, in use by high political leaders in, in many other countries uh, in the world. In, in reading accounts of uh, actions undertaken by you know, people following uh, the, the conception that, that we're uh, discussing, uh, they, they often speak in terms of stark contrasts between good and evil. Uh, 
the political domain is not a, a place of nuances, of, of policy, of measured discussion, of compromises. It's, it's a setting where absolutes come into play. Uh, is this is this part of the, the, the this this contrast of good and evil? Is is this central to the the, the kind of thinking that that uh, you've been describing, Gina? Yes, and, and this, of course, has been a problem for much of that Pentecostal charismatic movement that grew up in the seventies and eighties, in particular. Is um, their difficulty? to basically work with others and to tolerate others because it is quite black and white. There is only one way of being Christian, being a born again, for instance. There is no, there is no gray zones. And, and this kind of black and white thinking uh, also translates into the political realm. It's, uh, it can be a symbolic language and many times it is, but it can also be very kind of direct. That certain, um, it's, it's like describing for many, uh, for many Pentecostal charismatics who, who, who believe the spiritual realm is more important than the material realm or that the, the world that we live in, politics just become a theater for for those forces that are really at play. So any president or politician is a, is a puppet, so to say, <laughs> in that play that is really going on. And it, in that play uh, that is really going on, uh, you have um, demonic forces at play and uh, you have a battle of the good versus the bad. Uh, is exorcism a part of this? This mindset. The reason I ask is, uh, as someone I know who, who uh, you could say functions uh, <laughs> with this mindset, told me about exorcisms that were carried out in the White House uh, by uh -huh. a priest. But in this case, it was a Catholic priest uh, that she knows who, who went to the White House, you know. Uh, Presumably, you know, with uh, uh, President Trump's consent and, and, and presence of uh, President Trump, with the goal of exercising the evil demons that had been present there previously. Yes, yeah, so this is a very familiar story. I did not know about yeah. the U.S. case, but this is something I've heard in many different countries. Exorcism has been um, uh, exercised, so to say, and for instance, in 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 in, um, in the Nigerian in Nigeria, another country that I worked a lot in, and I remember it was maybe two years ago. One one of the top um, political advisors uh, to the president, maybe it was three three years ago, but he wrote um, a note that got a lot of publicity in Nigeria because he basically said he had to quit because there were so many spirits at work. He had tried to combat them through prayer and so on, but it was just infused kind of with demonic spirits. So I haven't heard the US story, but uh, but this is quite a normal a normal story from, from other countries. Um, I mean, around. it was a whole 
set of conspiracy ideas, as we know, surrounding Hillary Clinton, for example. This idea that she was, the particulars now, you know, I hardly remember, but something about, was it a pizza parlor and uh, child pornography rings mm. uh, and all sorts of sort of demonic spirits that were, that were somehow uh, surrounding her person, almost as though her person were under their, their direct influence. Uh, one of the people I, I spoke to who uh, still was and I think still is in charge of an organization uh, that, that promotes uh, Christian values in the, in the public domain. And this person was a, a strong supporter of uh, Donald Trump, uh, although he would have preferred to see Ted Cruz, he told me, as uh, uh, elected president. It stays with me how uh, this, this uh, individual described the U.S. as a country that was at the brink of a moral collapse. This was in the run-up to the, uh, the elections in, in 2016, that the U.S. was about to go over a waterfall and, be, hmm. and, and the entire moral uh, uh, fiber of the country was, was, had been so weakened it was about to be entirely broken. Uh, so when one conceives of uh, the situation in the country as being so extremely dire, uh, one can understand that, that unusual measures are necessary. And so Donald Trump became a kind of instrument of God's intervention to save the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I recall speaking with the, the, you know, this person that he recognized that Donald Trump had, had flaws. Uh, that's why he he preferred Ted Cruz, as he thought was somewhat of a you know better moral standing. But it turns out that that Donald Trump was the person who could rally the support that was needed, so he could become God's effective instrument to save the country from utter moral collapse. Uh, mm. So it here again you get this idea that matters of ultimate value. Are at stake, and a kind of state mm. of uh, state. Uh, you can understand how one could later think. Uh, I know that the the person I'm describing was among those who contested the the electoral outcome as f- fraudulent. You can understand that sort of an emergency measures might become necessary mm. to stave off the collapse, and that you know mere procedural matters of you know procedural democracy and that sort of thing that they you know in comparison to what's ultimately at stake in a decisive way you can understand how these these procedural matters might might seem insignificant and easily set aside so i you know do you there's yes. this sort of mindset about collapse mm. spiritual collapse is that reflected in the movements that you've been examining? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, um, well, it's, and it can be saved. It has to be combated, obviously. Uh, and it's, it's, 
And well, one of the reasons why it's so effective as a move, uh, as a movement and as a thinking is that it it gives room for both the powerful and 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 the strong and the weak, so to say. So everybody can, at their different level, engage in this somehow. And uh, in in many of these countries where the the Pentecostal charismatic movement has grown big, there has also been a strong kind of Christian nationalism, um, Christian nationalist ideology um, developing. But but you said something. I lost. I lost my point a little bit because you asked me if um, I had an answer to it. But can you just well, repeat um, the last thing? I was just saying the 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 sense that uh, uh, when political problems yes. are framed in these sort of absolute terms as a, as a, a total spiritual collapse, unless then then emergency yes. type measures become. Uh, justifiable and even desirable. So I was asking whether you see this yes. sort of thinking playing out in the in the context that you've studied. Then, because it's because globally speaking when one the the Pentecostal charismatic turn in the 80s was also a turn uh, kind of out of the church and into society. There was a decisive turn kind of suddenly because for many reasons, but they started thinking, oh, no, it's been a mistake that we haven't engaged in politics before because we are the rightful ones. We are the righteous. Uh, we need to also go in and control society if we want to change it. And the political arena is just one, but many. So there are lots of other institutions in society that are just as important. The family being number one. So the family is where, <laughs> where you really can restore society, for instance. So and education is another one. Getting engaged in the economy is another kind of area. The media, kind of getting involved. But the political arena is just but one of these arenas. And I would say that for many Pentecostal charismatics, that it is just... It is not regarded as the most important sphere, but it is one of the many important spheres that you have to engage in. So it requires extraordinary uh, measures and maybe in all these arenas, if you are to succeed, if you are to win over a society for God, which is kind of the, the ultimate mm-hmm. game. I, I uh, this, this idea of winning over society for God, uh, it, it's, as, it's as though the, the, what I would call the temporal sphere, that's how it's sort of described in, in traditional, uh, yes. uh, I, you know, uh, Thomistic or even Lutheran theology. Uh, the temporal sphere loses its its consistency as somehow distinct from the spiritual sphere of, let's say, the church, of a gathering of faithful. And so there's a kind of collapse, a kind of compression of the, 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 the spiritual union of believers, which again, traditionally is con- conceptualized as, as the church, 
and the temporal sphere of citizens. Uh, hmm. So the, the temporal sphere of citizens becomes, uh, is expected to be a place where uh, spiritual communion uh, is achieved. And people who don't share that spiritual communion uh, can't, can't fully be welcomed, accepted into the, the even into, the, into society. And so you end up with these, the, you know, the constant contrast and opposition of the, the spiritually minded to the secular minded. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, yeah, go on. But, because, could I yeah. ask you then, because, well, one of the things that happens with this broad global movement uh, in, in the 80s is, of course, the advent of uh, prosperity theology, which very explicitly says that you can, as God's children, you are entitled to have a good life here in what you call the temporal sphere, <laughs> but here uh, on earth. So is there something here? Is that, is that like? I mean, the, 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 the challenge is that the, what I would call the temporal sphere and then the spiritual sphere, they're not two different places. No. These are both aspects of the, 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 the of our reality. Mm-hmm. Now, not just in some, you know, we're not talking about some next level. We're talking yes. about our, our reality now. So, in a way, the the two. I think Pentecostals would the very two much spheres. Agree. Inter, okay, they you know they intermingle, but they intermingle uh, and. Uh, and obviously, that I, I can need to expect my spiritual good and, and ways of living out my spiritual good and achieving in, in this world. Uh, my only point is that uh, on a traditional account, there's a distinction between the things of God and the things of Caesar. Yes, that's where uh, Pentecostals took well, a different route yeah, yeah. in the 80s. Okay. And, and, the diff- and what, what is the turn exactly? Well, it's this thinking that we should enter societies and we should... There is a specific theology that kind of grew out of it, which is called Dominion Theology, that I think is uh, quite well known in the U.S. context, but which is is found uh, in all other countries where Pentecostalism has kind of grown big. So it's, it's basically the, th- the thinking that... Uh, the children of God or the right Christians should dominate the world. They should take dominion. So it becomes imperative to get uh, your people, (laughs) so to say, on top of society. For instance, the first born-again president that was ever um, took took power because he took power uh, through a, um, a coup. It was in Guatemala, Rios Mont in 82. And the whole kind of uh, the global Pentecostal media was like over itself. It was like, finally, we have a man, one of ours, a born-again with the powers 
that we as born-agains have on top. And I spoke to one of his uh, advisors, um, and he was reflecting on that period, and he was thinking, he, an, an old elderly man now, but he said at that time we actually thought that putting him in power would kind of magically make everything better because kind of God was in power because born agains are that close. <laughs> so uh, it, I don't I mean, know. But you know, it, this to me is, you know, kind of reminiscent of how some thought about uh, Donald Trump. Now, obviously he wasn't fully, he was not, he was not. No, he was he not a professed loss. evangelical yes. Christian, as far as I, I know. No. But mm. but many, and this has been told to me directly, considered him to have been chosen by God for this role. Yes. And the idea was that he would uh, provide effective leadership on key Christian values, like uh, doing away with abortion. Family. Uh, family. Yeah, family yeah, related, you know, yeah. Mm. No longer mm. cowtailing, you know, to uh, transgender mm. uh, rights and matters of mm. that sort. And and it, it seemed as though on this understanding, the, the country would be restored in the, it, 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 with, with Christianity rightly at its center. Something you said earlier, I thought, was you know uh, very interesting. You, you said that one of the characteristics of, of Pentecostalism, at least in, in the strands that you've been describing, uh, is that ordinary people were empowered. Ordinary people yes. can have a big impact, even in the political sphere. Yes. And I recall someone telling me um, that uh, before... Uh, the night uh, that uh, Donald Trump was elected, uh, she, you know, before the, the election results had come in, this is back in, in 2016, she stayed up the night praying that, that, that Donald Trump would become yes. president. She, she prayed yes. with all her heart that that would happen. And lo and behold, she woke up in the morning and he was president. Well, she stayed up most of the night. I don't know, maybe she stayed up all night, but, but he, okay. he, he, her prayer was answered. And my point is that she, in her mind, she had become a central player in a political drama. And, and yes. the political drama <laughs> was about the um, uh, faith uh, in forming yes. the society that, that, that we call America. Uh, yes. So, uh, and you can... And, and it was part of this rejection of elites. And mm. that, that's where, you know, again, Donald Trump was, get rid of, forget about these elites who act as only they are controlling things. Only they have a decisive voice. Mm. Ordinary people have a decisive voice also. So Donald Trump represented that rejection of the elites and the empowering of, of ordinary people who haven't been listened to. Uh, 
No, I th- and it is an important point because it's sometimes that because the Pentecostal kind of teaching and the- theology is very much focused on 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 the individual kind of. You can change your life. It's in your hands. Pray and uh, act and, and so on. This individual focus. So in the political realm, the, for instance, uh, as the example I was giving earlier from Guatemala about why did the civil war happen and so on. So it's not about, for instance, the big... Um, the big elites or the big structures that you can't change, <laughs> it becomes something that is actually within the realm of your powers to take part in. It's So there is this discussion kind of that there is something that is, of course, empowering in this. But that no, was thinking someone, when someone, you, I you don't, talked about I've never Paula met White Paula White. Someone else said how I know. she yeah. had stayed up. It was Paula White you mentioned who had stayed. Ah, someone else. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, someone else stayed up all night, prayed, and Trump won. So, and she inserted herself in this political drama. Because another question, which becomes relevant anywhere this movement yeah. is big, is, of course, what happens when the miracle doesn't occur? Because the miracle doesn't occur so many times. So, for instance, all those who stayed up and prayed now the last time, and woke up. And, well, it took some time, obviously, but he didn't win. So what happens then to the movement and to the theology? And what I've seen, at least from Nigeria and Guatemala and so on, is that, well, you have all kinds of strands happening at the same time, but but at, uh, at time it becomes... You can't kind of heat yourself up to that level of fever many, many times where you can always redirect what really happened wasn't this and so on. You, you can explain why yeah, it didn't happen I, I the mean, way, I can, but uh, it, I did it have tires a brief exchange with the, you know, the friend who, who, who stayed up uh, all night or most of the night, you know, praying for uh, Donald Trump's uh, electoral victory. Uh, we, we had a conversation recently uh, where I ended up challenging her on some of her thoughts regarding the uh, uh, the election of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and she simply responded to me that, uh, okay, she, she affirmed that the elections were fraudulent. Uh, she then said that the country is socialist now. But people don't realize it yet. Hmm. And so somehow God allowed this to happen. We didn't get more deeply into it uh, because it did happen. So some level God must have allowed for it. Uh, why God would have allowed for that, uh, I don't know. Uh, but okay, the, the country is now socialist and, and she had it and we're soon, we'll soon be persecuted. So it kind of has flipped into this uh, huh. uh, it's as though one is in one, one is in uh, uh, two possible conditions one condition is where the the, uh, the right religious values are 
orienting the political domain. Or, and, and that, that's what Donald Trump represented, not on his personal level, but mm. on, on his sort of the political agenda that he, he endorsed. Okay, Christian values are now in place. Or maybe you could say Judeo-Christian. They are guiding the country. Uh, or with Joe Biden, despite the fact that he's a professed Catholic, the, the opposite is in, is in place. It's a, it's, it's a secular... Perse- persecutional, I don't know, is persecutional a word? A secular regime that persecutes Christians that seeks to banish God. So it's either, you're either in one or the other. And what's striking is there's no, yes. e- 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 there's no ambiguity about it. Yes. Which would be my way of thinking. And that's what's characteristic of this world in contrast to, you know, the heavenly Jerusalem, the next world, well, is but, things are but, mixed. Uh, but but this, this sort of, it's either this or that. Uh, what do you, mm. I mean, what do you, have you found that in, in, in the context that you've studied? Yes, many times. But many kind of similar Expression. It gets it. It gets a different um, framing, obviously, in different contexts. So in Nigeria, it would be it's um it's a country of two hundred million people, where half is Muslim and half is Christian. So in in Nigeria, it would be okay losing the election for a Muslim president. Okay, it takes on a completely different. But you get the picture. But but on on the kind of the broader, maybe I'm I'm uh, on the kind of the border movement, I hope, and I've seen signs for it too, uh, that the kind of the movement is maturing a little bit. At least that's kind of the bigger churches, the bigger Pentecostal churches in in Guatemala, Nigeria, are who were kind of very constantly only focusing on the spiritual matters in, in the 80s and the 90s and also in the 2000s, also kind of... Uh, think, okay, no, if we are to change society, we also, we have to work in many different levels. Praying is not <laughs> sufficient. So uh, we have to cooperate with others in order to achieve goals, for instance, to, to build alliances and so on. So, so I hope that like the bigger movement, that, that, you, that you can see the Pentecostal movement as a kind of a, whether you like it or not, a reform movement, stopping or saying okay you've gone you've lost but okay because uh and that they might kind of uh, lose that fever that can bring out good stuff but also bad stuff (laughs) so to say but but uh but but that black and white thinking that you just described um is in many places very scary And it is a, a I'm, political. I'm it's uh, it's a political problem uh, in very many because it's still in many I places. I see this kind of thinking as as having come into religious settings that are ordinarily uh, resistant to it. So, so for instance, I'm a Catholic, uh, and. You know, like the friend I was describing ah, previously, yes. I've encountered other Catholics who are starting to mm. operate with this kind of 
collapse of the political into the spiritual, a loss of the sense of the distinctive characteristics of the political sphere, the temporal sphere. Mm. It just becomes a place where the spiritual drama is played out. Uh, the uh, mm. a place for a stark duality of good and evil. So I, on the one hand, I, it's encouraging that you're, when you tell me that the Pentecostal movement is, is maturing. And, and with that, uh, bringing some nuance mm. to the ideas that we've been discussing. And, and, and I, you know, I don't think the ideas are, are uh, necessarily false. What, it, it's the way the ideas are put together that becomes um, problematic, the particular conjunction of them. Uh, but anyway, it, it, so on the one hand, you get, mm. you get a religious movement or uh, you know, a strand of religious movement that's maturing, starting to gain some nuance. On the other hand, you get some very well-established religious traditions, well, you know, like, like uh, uh, as you find in, in Catholicism, uh, where the, the kind of uh, very mature views about uh, the, you know, about the matters we've been discussing, like the uh, contrast of the temporal and the spiritual spheres, the idea that, that the political is, is is a place where we can't always think in terms of absolute values. Sometimes they're engaged, but not always. There's a place for procedure. There, there's a place for compromise and, and so forth. That's, that's starting to come undone. That's starting to, to, to be swept away. And that's a troubling development. Uh, so, uh, mm. and I suppose understanding how this sort of thinking mm. can come into a more traditional religious framework, what, what led to that, that would I think maybe be the topic for another podcast. Uh, uh, but the, the, uh, but it, it's been great to discuss <laughs> yeah. this with you, Dina. Uh, and again, in a spirit of seeking understanding, uh, do you, do, are there any words that you would like to conclude with yeah. before we uh, sign out? Well, my, just what you were saying now last, because one could see, for instance, that the Pentecostal charismatic churches, it's a broad term, it's not specific enough, but okay, but that's what we're talking about now. And is now the second biggest Christian denomination in the world after the Catholic Church. So, and you are absolute right that while we're seeing signs that this broad uh, movement without uh, a clear center and so on is is maybe uh, is is gradually becoming more like an established church training pastors and education theological education and so on but so that is happening but uh, uh, in all the continents where it has grown big it has influenced the established churches immensely the catholic church being the biggest one um, so this thing of speaking in tongues, um, exorcism, uh, healing, miracle healings, uh, engagement of lay people, and also this spiritual kind of thinking has become much more dominant as well uh, in the established churches where the Pentecostal movement has grown big. 
Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good rest of the day, Gina. Tschüss und Tag. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.